country's getting just torn away in this wave of, of, of just heresy, is what it is. It's, it's heresy to the greatest degrees. And so, okay, Judges 4 and 5, let's just do a quick um, quick outline of the story. The thing we're going to be focusing on is Deborah's kind of song after after they get the victory. Um, Deborah, Deborah sings a song, and within that song, is a lot of good mission teaching and a lot of good um, instruction for us. So Deborah is the judge during this time of Israel. And this Deborah is commonly used as a defense for like women pastors and, and women leaders and things like that. Well, well, Je- well Deborah was one. So uh, why forget what Paul says. Deborah was one. We gotta, we gotta, what we got what we gotta understand is Israel during this time was under judgment. They had been sinning over and over and over again. If you read Judges, you know how frustrating it is. You know, you got you got Israel blessed, and they're, they're doing great, but that leads them into into just apathy and idol worship and other things, and then God punishes them, disciplines them, and usually puts them into exile to some pagan king, and then they're struggling, and they're crying out to God, and God listens to their cries and lifts them back up in their prosperity, then they go into idolatry, and so it's this, it's this wave of idolatry and, and then exile, and then crying out and blessing, and so it's really a frustrating book to read, because you're like, come on, Israel, why can't you get your act together here, and just realize that you know, you have to stay faithful to God. So, um, God allows Deborah to be a judge. He allows a woman to rule over them. And that's what's, what, what uh, situation they're in here. So Israel was disrupted spiritually and was disarmed secondary to the king that God had allowed them to be sold into slavery to. And this king's name is J-A-B-I-N. I don't know if you said it, Jabin or Jabin or I, I don't know. Jabin, Jabin, I don't know. I always heard the reader has the right pronunciation. Okay, Jabin. So the people finally stopped the rebellion against God after his heavy hand of Jabin, who had been on them for so long in the sense of slavery, and they, they, but it took them 20 years of punishment before they start crying out to God. So now in that 20th year, they're crying out to God. God listens. And to deliver them, he delivers them through ordering a holy war. And so now a holy war is going to start of Israel against Jabin and his men. Jabin had an incredible army, one of the best in the world at the time, and he had a military leader named Sisera. And Sisera had 900 iron chariots, and that was just a thing of great power in that day. No one had chariots, and he had 900. And so the odds here don't look good in the human thinking for Israel, but God, of course, is on their side. So God orders a holy war, and that's his God-chosen method of deliverance. And hopefully this would reanimate the dead spirits and the courage of the men in the, in the society that had fallen into weakness and apathy and, and frustration. So Jabin, we can look at him as the satanic figure in this in this section. He's the satanic figure having God's people in bondage. Okay? And just like Jabin, Satan has held the heathen world in bondage. Now I say heathen, don't think of a bunch of naked locals running around. Heathen is simply a word for the parts of the world that have not been reached with Christ or the gospel. So um, the heathen world had been held in bondage and oppression for many millennia, and that's how it is now. So Satan still has many people held in bondage in this world. And so like Psalm 7420 says, the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. And that's exactly what goes on in these countries. There's cruelty going on to, to displays that you do not even believe. In Haiti, I've seen, you know, I've seen blue priests murder their own kids, sacrifice their kids to the devil, eat human flesh, drink blood. All this stuff is going on on a daily basis many countries around the world that have been ransacked 
my safety. And until someone comes and tells them there's freedom from that, then they don't know. And then that's where we come in. So despite the fact that we're all created in the image of God and all sold under sin, we're all blind, we're all bound, and we're all bankrupt spiritually before we come to Christ. So it is in this condition that we are born. And we're oppressed. And we're overwhelmed by the power of the devil. And so considering this reality in the world, Christians, disciples of Christ, have to face up some difficult questions. Okay? Must men who were created to be free remain forever in spiritual chains? Are you always supposed to remain in chains? And the answer to that, of course, is no. Must the enemy's oppression continue unchecked and unchallenged? As long as the gospel is not in our country or situation, Satan is unchecked. He's unopposed. And he's not unopposed of God's sovereignty, but God in his sovereignty set it up. He didn't tell angels to go to go um, disciple the world or bring him to the world because if that was the case heaven would have been emptied out in 30 seconds it would have been done in 5 minutes but he left it to us for some reason which is very interesting because we're flawed we're scared we're, we're addicted to our comforts and so it's a, it's a tough thing for us to do but in his sovereignty he gave us that command he gave us that commission we have to take that seriously so Satan will remain unchecked until <coughs> obedient sons and daughters who've been adopted into Christ's family, God's family, will go in obedience and bring them the gospel. Okay? Um, are the fortresses of the enemy to remain sealed, safe, and secure? I mean, Satan has certain countries in the world where he's totally secure. He's not afraid of anything because no Christian presence is there. And then fourth, how long shall the gates of hell remain unopened for the countless unreached masses? We have to, we have to, we're supposed to storm the gates of hell. We're supposed to tear these open for people to be free. So all these questions exist because many Christians in this country, and I say this country because who's more capable of doing it in the world? Whose passports are good everywhere in the world? Who has the most money in the world? Who can fly to countries? You know, if a Haitian wanted to do it, there's no way. He couldn't get out of the country. They need all these crazy visas they can't get, they can't leave. And that's like that in a lot of countries. But we have the freedom to do so much in this world because we can freely pretty much go wherever we want. Any of us, if we want to be in China tomorrow, we can do it. Not many people can say that in the world. God's given us an incredible privilege to be able to do this and disseminate the gospel throughout the world. Satan knows this, so what does he do? He narcotizes us with comfort and security. So we're so blanketed with that, he just keeps us at bay while he ransacks the world. we got to break out of that. That's the whole point of being a Christian. <clears throat> so, following the victory over Israel, of Israel over Satan, so we know Israel defeats defeats uh, Jabin and Sisera. Um, Deborah sings a song, and it's mainly in chapter 5, and she passes judgment on every tribe. So what happened was, there was a call that went out to all of Israel to come join this fight. And many people, depending on how they each tribe responded, either earned Deborah's praise or Deborah's, or Deborah's condemnation. And so we're going to look at this, and this is where the teaching is in this section, Okay. So let's look at the first important point to realize here is um, good leaders will produce willing volunteers to fight in the battle. People need to be led. That's just how it's set up. People need to be led. And what I'm seeing in the church landscape in America, you know, we're everywhere. We're in Minnesota. i got to go to Indianapolis. We're in Phoenix, Arizona, Florida. We're all over the country. So I see different churches, different parts of the sections of the country. And I kind of see this overwhelming apathy that's falling on the church. And we need leaders 
And I see a lot of people knowing that there's more to this life, knowing that there's more power in us, and actually desiring to be purposeful, but they don't know what to do. And so they need to be led. Just like a general leads an army in the battle, we need generals to lead our Christians into battle. We need we need bold leaders. And so this is shown in verse 2 of chapter 5, as Deborah sings, quote, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. The leaders took the lead, people offered themselves willingly. That's the order, how it goes. Leaders lead, people join. Okay? Since the leaders took the lead, according to Judges 4, 6, 10,000 volunteers joined because the leaders took the lead. So this is important to notice today. People will offer themselves up and even be willing to risk their lives when leaders step down from their positions of dignity and join the foot soldiers. And that's something that has to be done. The problem with most leaders today is they're just worried about money, they're just worried about power, they're worried about their image, and they're up there dancing around on stage doing what they call a sermon with all along being motivated in their mind with selfish concerns. And that's just, that's an abomination of God. And they will answer for that. But on this earth, we're supposed to be prepared. We're supposed to prepare ourselves. As long as we have this, reading the world, the Bible, there's no excuse for sitting under a heretic. You don't have an excuse in front of God. I gave you my word freely, unpersecuted, for hundreds of years. You're sitting under a heretic. There's no, that's just inexcusable. Okay, so now let's look at each of these, um, these uh, tribes. So, across history, we see many worldly leaders that could have went into worldly prestigious positions, but they chose to be servants of God. And this list is just full of, I mean, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Othniel, Barak, King David, Paul, then bring it into post-redemption, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Whitfield, Livingston, Brainerd, Hudson, Taylor, Jonathan Edwards, the list goes on and on and on. People who had a really good mind, could have secularly exploited that and made money and power for themselves, but they chose to enter into servitude to God and they surrendered their lives to it. They didn't make much money. They lived, you know, not very wealthy existences, and that was a willing thing because their eye was focused on heaven. Our eyes sometimes are too focused on earth. Okay? So Spurgeon rightly said to his son, if God calls you to be a missionary, don't shrivel up to be a king. That's how we need to look at it. That's our worldview. Nothing the world offers is impressive to us. We have to, we, we have to look at mission work as the primary, most elevated, most elite position in the world. The world won't tell you that, but God will be down in this <coughs> way, and you will receive the rewards affiliated with such work when you can come. And that's what we can do. Okay, so um, when such leaders take the lead in the army of Christ, many young recruits will come, and they will cease to be draft dodgers, and that's what we have a lot of. So let's look at each, each, each tribe. So we're gonna um, we're gonna start with the tribe of Ephraim. So I'm gonna take it just like <coughs> in, uh, in five there. So Ephraim, what, this is some now this is some back stuff that's that goes into Josephus and some some other um, biblical historians. So we know that the Amalekites at this time, Israel's enemy, actually had a presence in Ephraim. Okay, and actually. This is in Exodus 17, 
God says that the Amalekites will be your continual enemy. Okay, he, he, he pronounces that. But then in Judges 12, 15, we see that the Amalekites actually had a stronghold in the land of Ephraim. So that would be like ISIS having a big, a big system here in the United States that we were constantly worried about and constantly against. They were, they were operating out of our country. That's what was going on in Ephraim. The Amalekites had a station in their country. So what, what did that mean? It means they were in constant war in their own country. They were in constant concern in their own country what the Amalekites were going to do and constantly kind of worrying about that. So with this much trouble at home, how could Ephraim be expected to volunteer for a war abroad? They had something to do at home. They could have easily used that. Ephraim could have easily said, don't talk to us about rallying recruits for a foreign invasion because charity begins at home. You hear that all the time here. Charity begins at home. We have to care for our home needs first. While this is true, obedience to the call usurps this concern. And thus Ephraim would have to leave its home worries in the hands of the Lord in faith. And they did this and went to join the war. Okay? So today, countless Christians excuse themselves from foreign missions and they, as they use home missions as an excuse. And I hear this all the time. Why are you in Haiti when, I'm from Chicago, so why are you in Haiti when the West Side of Chicago meets missionaries? Why are you in Haiti when there's a drug, drug thing going on in, in, in Chicago? But even if we viewed our home concerns at their darkest, they would be white compared to the exceeding darkness of Jesus. And that's just the truth. I was talking to somebody the other night. People lost in Chicago, people lost in Haiti. There's a big difference between being lost because you rejected God and being lost because you've never heard of Jesus. That's a difference. Both lost, both, one is self-serving, one is our fault because we're not praying the gospel. So don't talk to me about people here. Of course they need the gospel. But there's a church on every corner. The Bible's freely available. I mean, even if you don't want to go to church, YouTube has tons of great, or the computer has tons of great podcasts and from godly men. You can go all the way back to people like Tozer and Spurgeon and get their, their, there's so much access here compared to a country that doesn't have any light in it at all. No witness for Christ. And so, um, the early theologian G. Christian Weiss rightly said, charity does begin at home, but charity cannot stay at home or end at home. When charity ends at home, it's no longer charity, it's selfishness. And that's the truth. Okay, we have to be concerned about the world because we are a global church. Okay, the local church is part of the global church. And when a local church is blessed, when a national church is blessed, it's expected to go out and bless the global church with the gospel. Okay, now let's look at Benjamin. Benjamin was the smallest tribe, they were the weakest tribe, they were the poorest tribe. Okay, Benjamin was little. But Ephraim was the first to be mentioned with honor. But we have to ask, what moved Ephraim to their active response? What moved them? And we, Benjamin was weak, poor. And in this state of poverty and weakness and being little, they led the volunteer charge. That inspired Ephraim, who was greater in all parameters than Benjamin, to follow them in the war. And then it says in, in um, chapter 5, from Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with their king. So Ephraim followed Benjamin. Little, weak, poor Benjamin led the fight. And in a mightier part of the country, Ephraim looks at that little, weak tribe going, and that inspires the follow. Zechariah 
Don't despise the day of small things. Okay? Just because something small doesn't mean God can't use it powerfully. We see this throughout Scripture. God always chose the youngest son in a society to bless the oldest son. God, God took Gideon and used 300 men to be 85,000. God continually uses small things to take away the strength of what we call strength in the world. And so we have to realize that about God's character. He frequently chooses the weak to inspire the mighty to move. God does confound the things that are mighty. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.12. Okay, so too many people consider themselves unqualified for mission work. I don't have enough talent. I don't have enough funding. I'm just an insignificant Christian. I don't have any special giftings. But in God's kingdom, small gifts coupled with powerful prayer results in mighty work on the missionary front. So also remember, Scripture severely warns us through warning us through the servant. In Matthew 25, the servant who had the one talent and neglected it, what happens? He gets thrown into a place with the unbelievers. He could not use it as an excuse. I only have one talent when they have five. He couldn't use that. So you can never use it in front of God. I was insignificant. When he's calling you a son, a daughter, an image bearer. So be inspired by the Lord's Then we go to this tribe called Mashir. Mashir, you're like, that was a tribe. You'd be right, but Mashir was the son of Manasseh. The son of Manasseh, who was Manasseh? Manasseh was Ephraim's brother, and who was Manasseh and Ephraim? They were Joseph's sons. So this is out of the, this is out of the tribe of Joseph. Okay, and then we read in Judges 5.14b, out of Mashir marched the commanders. The sons of Manasseh offered and provided leadership. Okay? The ongoing holy war for souls requires leaders, like I said before. Today, many gifted young men are led to believe that they shouldn't waste their many talents and gifts on the foreign mission field. This is the spirit of Judas, who wondered about all this waste upon the Savior when he was getting his feet Put you in that same mindset. Why take something that's so potentially secularly great and waste it on the mission field? That's unfortunate. You get a Rhodes Scholar, someone with a super high ACT score, super gifted, intellectual. What's what's our thought? Oh, he's going to go on to be a surgeon. He's going to go on to be a lawyer. He's going to go on to be some corporate awesome guy. And that's actually how the church pushes him. And what the mission field needs great men too, great women too, who are filled with the Spirit of the Lord, have giftings, and can lead. And so why do we push those kids, tend to push them towards secular stuff, when we should be pushing them toward mission work? Reveal the double standard. In physical war, in physical wars, do we send riffraff to the front? No, we don't. General MacArthur, General Eisenhower, just put in the name. We always take our best men to lead troops in physical war. Why don't we use the same criteria for spiritual war that's going on? The church in Antioch, founded by Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, juggernauts of the faith. I bet you the church at Antioch said, you're not going anywhere. You're staying right here and teaching us. But that, that, that Paul and Barnabas knew there was a war going on outside. They needed to bring the gospel. They left that place in the hands of the Lord. And the elders they appointed. So we're not, we can't, we're not supposed to keep our best. We're supposed to send them out into, into the mission field. And flood the mission field for people who are capable of doing this work. And leading. Okay. And then um, Zebulun and Naphtali quickly. This is Judges 5.14. Out of Zebulun, they that handle the pen of the writer. 
Okay, that's the correct translation. Your translation says Right, it's a scribe. The staff lieutenant wasn't a physical staff. They walk around. This was like the, the scribes, the people who took the took the administrative wrote the clerks, they, they they recruited, they kept records and accounts and all these kind of things. Now while this work isn't as exciting as frontline fighting, it's nonetheless important. Okay, with this in mind, let's remember the King David. Remember King David went to fight and half the people stayed with the gear and half the people went to the war? And then the people went to war and one came back and said, we're not sharing with you people who stayed with the gear, they didn't do anything. And what did David say to them? For as his share is who goes into battle, so shall his share be who stays with the baggage. They shall share alike. Because the people that had to share the baggage, what did they have to do? They had to sleep by that baggage. They had to be watching it 24 hours a day. They had to be concerned. They had one concern that that gear of war, the stuff they needed to, to benefit them, was going to stay safe. And so we need people like that in missions too. And they will share alike in the harvest and in the blessings of heaven. Okay, these are the senders of missionaries. These are the prayerful warriors that pray for missionaries. But also, don't hide behind that when you're called to be one. Praying for missionaries, that's great, but is God calling you to the field? Because if God's calling you to the field, you can pray all you want, you're living in disobedience. Okay, you have to do what God calls you to do. When I go on the field, I'm not going to quit praying. You're going to pray all the time, but don't hide behind things when God's calling you into something else. Because God, what is Satan? Okay. Some of the men were better skilled in books than war. But they quit their desk jobs. This is the second group. One group stayed writing stuff and they were they were finding that, that was needed. But another group of them that were the same group described, they quit and went into the field of battle. And these tribes were the most bold and daring of Barak's forces. When you look at Judges 5.18, it says, Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. With a single hearted heroism, they faced Jabin's 900 chariots of iron, defying danger and defying death. Okay? As Henry famously said, it's better to die in honor than to live in homage. The mission field is in desperate need of men and women who, like Epaphroditus, Philippians 2.30, who, for the work of Christ, came almost unto death, risking his life. And then, um, Let's, uh, we're going to skip down for time's sake to the list of shame. So those are the people that Deborah commended. Now let's look at the people that Deborah shamed. We're going to start with Reuben. So Reuben, according to Judges 5, 15 through 16, among the plans of Reuben, there were great surgeons of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the plans of Reuben, there were great surgeons of heart. The call of war had sounded, and Reuben heard it. Their hearts were stirred. Their response was sympathetic, promising, inspiring. They were filled with a patriotic heart, a patriotic impulse. Twice we read there were great searchings of heart by Reuben. And that can be translated as they were debating whether they should go or not. They were trying to decide whether they should go or not. They were stirred. They knew how desperate the situation was because they had been under the same slavery for 20 years as the rest of Israel had been. Was this not enough to put them immediately and willingly into volunteering for the war? How could their hearts harden? The call to duty was clear, it was unmistakable and challenging. Reuben's men, though, sat and carefully calculated. The call to duty, oh, sorry, great were their debating, as it said. 
So the longer this went on, the longer they sat and thought about it, the less likely they were going to go. And that's a true statement for us, too. If, we're, if we hear a call from God, why do you think you know, all those apostles immediately followed God? The word immediately in Mark used 40 times in response to Jesus calling people. Immediately. Why? Because in our human condition, if we sit around and think about it, we convince ourselves not to do it. We can think of a million reasons not to go. And that was Reuben's problem. They sat along with great searchings of the heart. Should we do this? Should we not? You know, come to think of it, this area has 900 chariots. I don't think we're going to beat that. Oh, we're led by a woman. And Jacob's went in Brock's weak. They could have talked themselves out of it very easily. And they did. Okay? So, Deborah says, why do you sit among the sheep folds? The sheep is how Reuben made money. They were the grazers. And so their money and commerce started calling to them. Let's be comfortable. That's on the other side of the water anyway. We don't need to go. And so they listened to their commerce, they listened to their business, they listened to the bleeding of the sheep in the fields. The call of business was louder in the ears of Reuben than the call of God's war. It became that way with all their debating. The trumpet call faith into nothingness. How much this sounds like young Christians today. Young men who God calls to share Christian warfare. Young men hear this, they stand up, they volunteer, they're initially zealous, will go, and they start thinking about it. And this causes mental wrestling, emotional pain. One minute, such a one is impelled to go, but then comes the call of home, friends, comfort, security, jobs, etc. You have a good office job, promising career, right business prospects, perhaps a bank account is growing. The love of money is the root of many evils. Maybe your ambition is teaching, politics, medicine, whatever. You'll say, I'll make money to give commissions. That's great, but that's not your calling. You're very possible to have great stirrings of your heart, make great resolutions for the kingdom, while you continue to sit in the bleachers or your pew, and end up doing nothing with all these ideas to do it. Your lazy response becomes, here I am, I'm still here. Have you ever brought yourself to cry out, send me? Ask God, send me. I want to go into, I want to save souls. I want to bring your word. Send me. That's a hard thing to pray, because you might hear Africa. Eurasia. And that might be something you don't even want to pray. Okay, so you can have great agonies in your heart when you hear the things you hear today in the sermon. You can come to be brought to tears by what you hear, but um, what's going on in the, in the developing world. Your intended resolution is to obey God. But after all of this, you fail to move because we think about it too much. Willing is not enough. You have to go. And how frightening it is to consider that the coming battle review of your career Maybe summed up with three words. We're stirred, but you stay here. Gilead. Judges 5.17a. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. The Gileadites were not just lazy, but they expressed godless insensibility and indifference. Why would we cross the Jordan? Why would we go so far? This isn't mandated or for forced call. It's an option, so we're not obligated to go. Besides, the Jordan separates us. We have this great river separating us. Therefore, while it's an option, we prefer not to take it. We prefer not to risk it. Why volunteer run into danger when we're okay? The call of missions today is met with the same level of indifference as it was for the Gileadites. We ask the same question, why cross the water? Why go to such length? These people are so far away, they don't know us, they don't know their culture, it's their country, they have their own religions, why would I go create problems for them? They probably prefer to be left alone anyway, but they wouldn't even want me there. 
They're content, why should I disturb them? And thinking like this, we commit murder by neglect. We echo the words spoken to God by Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? We silence God in our lives, we quench the Holy Spirit and turn into draft dodgers. Don't think for one minute that anyone with this thought process is not going to have an answer for it. Couple more and we're closing. Dan, why did Dan stay with the ships? Ship Judges 517. Dan, if you look into history, business was great. They were ship people. So actually the war benefited them. People need they needed ships. Dan was making money. This is a very common occurrence in American Christianity. The call of business can easily kill the call of Christ. Easily. So often we hear the reasoning, you know, that the country and its economy, they, it needs businessmen, teachers, doctors, nurses, and lawyers, and boy, do they get it. We get it in huge numbers. In this process, God goes without while our country burgeons and we even die. It didn't matter to Dan that their captivity brought disgrace and blasphemy to the name of God. Dan could not find it within himself to Called the Lord demanded that Dan turn his back on the affairs of this life and enter into God's call as his first line of business, not his second. And Dan failed to realize this. He was spiritually sleeping. And he didn't realize that those ships, they hold so high and mighty, they will shove shipwreck something. Those worldly items can't take them with you. So pay attention, Christians who live under the spell of some supreme attraction in the world. Do not know that they will surely come when you have to part with your material bring it with you, or your idols. You may appear as a good-living Christian man or woman, but what will you gain as you lie in your deathbed from worldly idols that you amass from your labor on earth which you can't bring with you? Like the rich fool in Luke, you enlarge your barns, you increase your possessions. In our case, we raise our families, we leave our children in prosperity, and now the divine sentence falls on you. And your trembling soul at that point has to give an account of your stewardship. so accustomed to a plush life that he couldn't even consider getting involved in the difficulty of war. Proverbs 132, the prosperity of fools destroys them. Will God have to allow communists or Muslims to knock your complacency out of us? And I come to that. And that's what God does throughout all biblical history. He uses a pagan country to knock sense into his people when they get too apathetic, too idolatrous, couldn't leave his comfortable cottage on the Mediterranean. The reference to this comfort-loving tribe is concluded with celebration of Zebulun and Naphtali. Our affluence in our country has successfully rid us of the Christian soldier motif. Okay. A certain pastor was asked, how is it that your church has so much money to give to missions? His reply was, the people of this church have decided that a lot of modern gadgets and things are not necessary. So they have more money for missions. Nor has my congregation a lot of cottages by the lake to consume their cash and their concerns. 
The modern mania of this gadget loving tech generation for a hundred unnecessary things. How can God's cause prosper when we are swept along in the tide of spending and indulgence? I want you all to really think about this because we have so much opportunity in this country and we will be held to our account for it. We will die all of us alone. We don't know when that's speaking. It might be tomorrow. It might be today. And then you're standing in front of God. What do you what account are you going to do for your life based on what He did, what He gave you? It's doable. In our case, we're going to be held pretty highly accountable in terms of the world because we're, we're blessed beyond blessed in church and money and jobs and everything. Spend a few weeks in Haiti and you'll see how blessed you are. So um, the last one here is Morose. That's the last one. And that's Morose was a country that was, was a little city. It was 10 miles from the home of Barack. So this is interesting because Deborah starts talking about Morose and they're not even really part of the part of the Jewish church. They're just God expects them to step in the place and help because they were so close. And if you look through the prophets, he condemns Edom for this, he condemns all kinds of countries for this. If you saw your brothers in war, you might have not been under the covenant, they were not covenant, but you saw your brothers in war, why didn't you help them? Okay? And so that's what it says in Judges 5.23. Curse morose, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. They lived ten miles from Barak, but morose refused to help. Theirs was the sin of undone duty, the sin of omission. They knew what to do, but they didn't do it. Versus the sin of commission. You know not what to do, but you do it. So it's two different things. One's active, one's passive. One's a refusal to obey. One's refusal to do what you know to do. So it can rightfully be said with God's people, sins of omission are greater than the sins of commission. And I really do believe that too. The sins of omission are things we don't take so seriously. If we do sins of commission, adultery, murder, stealing, that's something we all rally hard against. But we never rally against these sins of omission. And that's a problem because the sins of omission omit God's presence from certain areas that should have it because we're not going. Remember, Christianity is a soldier you're saved, you're enlisted. Just like in our book, Paul uses so many military terms. We're an army, we're soldiers in this fight against Satan. And if no one comes to fight, Satan just has it too easy. We can't make it that easy. That's what I'm seeing in Haiti. The presence of God shows up in Haiti in dark corners of the world where for hundreds of years they've been worshiping demons. You turn around hundreds of years of demon worship in one day. It's incredible. Same thing with Paul in Ephesus. He comes, they're worshiping the demon Diana for or Artemis for 2,000 years, and in two years Paul defeats it. The power of God will remain. It's in you. So utilize it. Use it. Use it. It's not meant to sit in our nation. It's meant to go out and change the world. Okay? So let us consider something in light of Morose's sin. Let's pretend that I, like the men of Morose, live nearby a desperate battlefield. Haiti.
we never fight. So I know very well that men, women, and children on any foreign field are dying right now without Christ. Today, the number is 76,000 people die a day under Christ. And 24,000 of those are kids under 12. We cannot accept that number. It should, it should insult us. It should offend us. We should be driven to do something about it. I could help. I could lend a hand. I could contribute. I'm unable to go. I could, with brothers and sisters, send the missionaries. We can all do something, is what I'm trying to say. We can all do something. Of course, all of us can't go. Some of us are older. Some of us have physical ailments that won't allow us to go. Are you praying and are you sending? John Piper said there's three options in the Christian life. You go, you send, or you disobey. Those are three options in our Christian life. Let's just, just so, well, the give one minute. The response is our generation B to God's military call. You got to think, why are we alive in 2018, 19, 20? Why are we alive right now? Because no one else is alive. This is our job. This is our time. No one else can do it. We are supposed to deliver our generation. No one else is called to do this. That's why God allows us to be born now. That's why we're all sitting here. And it's not 1900. And it's not 2130. It's 2019. We're alive for a purpose. God's determined our borders times according to Acts, and that's for a reason. And that's to defeat the devil in our generation. So on that great day of review, when you when God reveals his honor roll and his list of shame, which one would he be? That's a question you have to ask when this answer. So I hope this encourages you to get going and, and just like I said, everyone can do something. You can pray. I know you can pray. Everybody can pray. We all should be praying about missions. If we can support it, we should be supporting it. If we, we're called to go, we should go. And we can change this world. I said the other night, America has 3,000 times the financial power and 9,000 times the manpower to finish the Great Commission. Finish it. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. We're getting farther and farther and farther from it. Today, 42% of the world does not have a witness for Christ. It's never heard of 42%. We can't sit there and be okay with that. So thanks for listening. And, um,